0: In your bulletins on the page for the sermon notes, you'll notice on the title of this sermon series, which I hope to keep more in front of you than we've done in the past, picked up on a couple of themes from the book of Exodus, Uh, chapters 1 through 15 could be said to highlight God's redemption. And then uh, chapters 16 through 40 highlight uh, God's relationship with His people. You see, a lot of those themes come up here at the very beginning in chapter 1, and this is going to, studying this book as a whole will help us understand why He saves His people and he, He gives them the law. He authorizes a house to be built for Himself toward the end of the book called the Tabernacle. The Lord desperately wants a people to worship Him, and We'll see that story unfold throughout this book. This morning, I'm going to focus on three things in Exodus chapter 1, that God places us in covenant relationships. God knows our need of redemption. And God is faithful to us as people. Firstly, in the first seven verses, first paragraph here in Exodus chapter 1, He places us in covenant relationships. I'm going to look firstly at the reality of our covenant family. Uh, The first seven verses give us a bridge from Genesis, uh, which is important in the original Hebrew language. uh, The book begins with the conjunction and. So this is a continuation of everything that was said In the book of Genesis, in fact, this rehearsal that we have before us of Jacob's descendants is the same list that's given to us in Genesis 46, verse 8. We see mention of Jacob and then Joseph, who obviously are related to Abraham. This is the story of of Abraham's descendants. We remember God made a covenant with Abram in Genesis 12, which is essentially a treaty. Between a a higher authority and a lesser authority. And God said to Abram, I want to make a relationship with you. He cut a covenant with him, saying that his nation, the nation that would come from Abram, would be great and all the other nations would be blessed. He gave him a sign of that covenant, which was circumcision in Genesis chapter 17, to mark out his people from the rest of the world. What we see in the rest of Exodus then is a continuation of this covenant family story. God chose them simply because He did, not because Abraham was better or because he earned God's favor. But this is a powerful story, a motif up to Exodus 1. Uh, I had a class called Covenant Theology uh, as a master's level class. And one essay question was trace the seed motif in the book of Genesis. You will see if you looked back from Adam to Joseph that God has been working in and through this covenant family, through generations, always keeping his promises. We reflect, though, From Romans chapter 4, that Abraham received the sign of circumcision by his faith, but that he is the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Meaning, this is not simply a Jewish story. Abraham is not the father of the Jewish nation. He's the father of everyone who has put their faith in his God. And so, this is our family. This is the family we've been placed in by faith. But secondly, this set of relationships is not simply a family, but there's also a covenant mission that is being continued from the book of Genesis. Verse 7 gives us again a reminder of the mission of the family as the same language of Genesis 17. As God told Abraham, he will make him exceedingly Fruitful. What does it say there in verse 7? But the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. In our mind's eye, we have to continue to hear these promises. That this is a mission statement that is progressing. It will never be stopped. The promises of Abraham are continuing to come true but it goes back further than that where else have we heard to be fruitful and multiply from someone older than abraham in genesis 1:28 god says to adam be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion that's continuing to happen throughout pregnancy issues throughout childbirth of really old ladies like Sarah, through death, even at the very beginning with Cain and Abel. God's progressing his mission, and it's not going to stop. We aren't the point. We're on God's mission. This is actually his mission. This isn't Israel's mission. It's not Moses's mission. It's God's mission, and He will accomplish it, and nothing will stop Him. And the Israelites are actually in Egypt by command of God. In Genesis 46, God tells Jacob, as he's near the end of his life, his son Joseph is already serving the Egyptians, and Jacob hears of Joseph's survival and says, I want to go back. I want to go back and see Joseph. And God says, yes, take your family to Egypt. They're actually here on mission by divine commandment. We have a family, regardless of our biological family. We have a mission beyond our own personal goals or aspirations or employment that are rooted in what we're talking about this morning. But let me quickly go to the second point because now it gets a little startling Because having said all of that, God still knows our need of redemption, and it is great. Because if you look here at our need of redemption in verse 8, it's strange. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built uh, cities for Pharaoh. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So key here, verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. The need of redemption is astoundingly great for the Israelites. What does it mean that there's a Pharaoh now that didn't know who Joseph was? Uh, throughout, throughout this study in the book of Exodus, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, not simply because he lives in England and I love the English, as you know, but his name is Chris Wright. And Chris Wright is not our favorite... Uh, Drummist back here, only, but he is an Old Testament scholar. And he rightly notes that obviously this Pharaoh knew Joseph. Everybody knew Joseph. He was second in command when he died. He no longer knows the covenant obligations. He no longer knows the love that Joseph had for a foreign people. So now he pragmatically hates. Joseph's people. The previous pharaoh loved Joseph because, as we remember, Joseph saved uh, Egypt from years of famine. But this new pharaoh sees God's blessed growth of his people as a threat. So, to oppress, in verse 11, it means to bring low or to beat down. And another Old Testament scholar, Alec Mateer, notes the word ruthlessly in verses 13 and 14 is only used five times in the Bible and reflects general hardship. Um, I'll talk about Old Testament slavery in detail when we get to chapter 21, where the text addresses it. As you probably know, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what they're talking about with regards to slavery is a broad-spectrum category Larger than what's happened in our country. But what God is referring to in verses 13 and 14 is very similar to what we think of as slavery. They are being treated ruthlessly, all of the Israelites, simply because of the God they serve. So much so that later in the Pentateuch, God says to Moses in Leviticus chapter 25 that as they encounter foreigners, as they have maybe indentured servants or slaves in their households, they are expressly not to treat each other or anyone else else ruthlessly. Same Hebrew word. Because that's how they were treated. But here... It's being allowed. They are experiencing a, a picture of pure, organizational, systemic sin. And it's awful. Just like this pharaoh felt no obligation to Israel anymore, though, so eventually some of the Israelites are going to feel no obligation and have no knowledge of God. So, as we're looking at at the horrific nature of corporate sin from the Egyptians to the Israelites, we, we have to remember that we're not simply seeking redemption from other people. Our own hearts need redemption. Because if you turned the pages several generations to the book of Judges chapter 1, generations later from these Israelites, there will be sons and daughters of Israel who do not know Yahweh. Now, does that mean that they've forgotten their history or that their mom and dad never told it to them? Of course not. They all would have known all of this history. But they would not feel covenant obligation they would have forgotten the grace that they have received from god and so the need of redemption is not simply from the egyptians but from their own sin as well verses 8 and 9 though speak of our god knowing our need of redemption and it questions our knowledge of his actual providence we confessed our faith this morning with the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question and answer 27 and 28, which uh, these, these things that are put in the bulletin are not there by chance. It's planned out and it's practical, but especially uh, page five of your bulletin is worth tearing out and posting somewhere in your house to read frequently, maybe even, dare I say, memorize. Memorize. Because God's providence is a much forgotten and not known doctrine. You see, His governance, as Sean was saying, of all of creation, that all things come to us not by chance but by His fatherly hand. And so, therefore, we can be patient in adversity. Who's facing adversity? All of us, probably, in some degree. We've just said that God sent the Israelites into Egypt. Did He not know that Joseph would die and Pharaoh would die and someone else would reign who would punish His people? Is He not in control? Has He lost His providence? We have all the answers to those questions. The presence of suffering of the people of God doesn't mean that God's lost control or that He no longer cares or that He's no longer at work in our lives. Of course, He still is. God knew when He sent Jacob to Egypt that He, Joseph, the grateful Pharaoh, would die and that His people would suffer. He and we know what he will do in the Exodus several chapters later. And how this is going to be one of the single greatest acts recorded in all human history. But the people in Exodus 1 don't know that yet. They have to patiently wait and suffer. I love the hymn that we used to sing fairly regularly in the the previous church I served in. I had never really sung that hymn before a whole lot, but the rhythmic lines are, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we don't have all the answers, even as believers. We could talk about persecution. We can look at the persecution of God's people then in the New Testament and today and we just simply don't have all the answers, and we're asked to trust and obey, there is no other way. We are finite, limited creatures. The question to us this morning then is, are we suffering? How is God still at work in the midst of our suffering? Are we okay with trusting Him without knowing what He's doing And why he's doing it. And are we also willing to recognize that we still need to repent of our own sin when we think that we can do better? When we think we know more than him? When we think he's wrong in his plan? And maybe when we even fail to trust him. Again, Chris Wright, the other one, he says, God simply never seems to be in a hurry. Though he can sometimes act with frightening speed, he waited till Abraham and Sarah were already well past childbearing age before promising them a son. Then he waited another quarter century before delivering on that promise. Joseph waits for years in Egypt, shifting from heights of responsibility to destitution in prison and back again. At least two centuries pass between the events described in Exodus 1-6 and what is triggered in Exodus 1-8. And all that long time, it might seem that God had forgotten His promise to Abraham, yet verse 7 says, not at all. Psalm 33 will tell us, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our hope and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. The suffering... And the patient waiting in God's providence is pushing us to say, what do we really believe in? What is our faith in? And if I can confess, the one answer that I could give to our ruling elders about six weeks ago of of how I can grow is patience. Wait. God is not in a hurry. But that's really hard, especially when we suffer. But you know what? I like patience even when I'm not suffering. Why can't things go faster? Why can't there be a spiritual harvest that I can see that's greater? Move faster, God. Give me more answers. But the Lord has continued to put things in my life in the last month, six months, 12 months, 15 years, where there still are no answers, or there still has to be waiting. God is not in a hurry, which is a huge struggle, especially for our generation and our time. But His providence is still working and true, which is what we're going to see in verses 15 through 22, that God is still faithful to His people. There is yet another disaster unfolding. They've not only now had to endure uh, physical persecution for, for years, but you see in verse 15 and following that uh, things are not working for Pharaoh. So you'll have like a series of plan A didn't work. Well, what's, what's plan B to control God's people? infanticide against male-born children. How dark. Pharaoh tells Hebrew midwives to commit infanticide against Hebrew boys at birth. Uh, However, the hearts of the Hebrew women have been captivated by the person and the work of God as they knew the stories of Genesis and God's grace. So part of what we see in these first few verses between these two two women whose names we probably have forgotten, although they're written here. God shows his faithfulness through his people, through changed lives. He's actually already been changing people's lives for generations, for centuries, through Abraham's family. Now the rubber, in a sense... Uh, meets the road. God had been, been doing this work, and then this command comes to some of these Hebrew midwives. They don't know what the punishment is if they don't obey, most likely death. But verse 17, it says, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live there's civil disobedience. The verb at the very end of verse 17 is causative, probably meaning that these midwives, when they saw a male child child born, they made sure he lived because they feared God, not a government, not taskmasters. They're living in the midst of the greatest superpower of their age. And yet they say, No, we fear Yahweh, not Pharaoh. One of my Old Testament professors uh, said it like this God's sovereignty does not mean we simply sit back and watch life unfold. Exodus begins with two lowly women disobeying the most powerful ruler in the world. Why? They feared God. That is, they understood, there is a greater king to whom they gave account, causing them to resist evil and live righteously. They did so shrewdly, but courageously. Living in light of God's kingship does not lead to passivity, but to actively fighting evil. Reminded me of Psalm one forty seven eleven. but the, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love so we 've pivoted in a sense, just in this first chapter, from having to patiently wait on god 's providence, trusting that he is still in control of all things, even though we 're witnessing immeasurable suffering but we 're also told to act courageously the other egypt the, the, the other Israelites must have seen the faith of these Hebrew midwives to say. Yahweh is still at work. He is still faithful to His people. There are still believers at the cost of their own life willing to disobey an evil command from an evil authority. Which, as I said last week, more and more of us may have to face here in our own country in our own state. Who's the real king over our hearts? It has to be Yahweh. But finally, how can that be so? How do we see his faithfulness? It's not simply through the people's lives that he has changed, although hopefully we can give testimony to that even here, but it's through his his own providence. Yes, that thing that we just said is very mysterious and very difficult at times and uh, very opaque that we can't see and understand. We see very clearly as, as things get even worse that plan B does not work for Pharaoh in getting the Hebrew midwives to commit infanticide. Now Pharaoh enlists all of the other Egyptians to say, <laughs> grab any male-born child and throw it in the river. We have got to do population control over these people. They They will overrun us. We have to control this. We have to manage this. We have to manufacture something to control God. But God will not be controlled. You see, finishing up, uh, so God dealt well with the midwives because they continued to resist and the people multiplied and they grew very strong. The promise to Abraham, the promise to Adam, the command, it doesn't stop in Exodus chapter 1. They're, they're trying to kill through infanticide all of these male-born children. They're trying to throw them in the river and yet it doesn't stop. They keep growing stronger. They keep multiplying God, through His providence, is still being faithful to His people, to all the promises that He's already made. His mission won't be stopped. I reflected on this from Genesis 46. I already mentioned that Jacob is worried. He's going to die without seeing Joseph again. And he says, well, I want to go to Egypt. I want to see him again. And God says this to Jacob. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. The people living in Exodus chapter 1 already saw half of that take place. Jacob did return to Egypt. Joseph was there when his father died. And he's the one who buried him. God is faithful through His providence to His people. We know that He will be faithful, too, even more so. He will be with us, even in whatever Egypt we face in this life Because we have this recording in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 that tell us of another male child who was also related to Jacob, who was also under threat of death at birth when Herod threatened to kill him. The child was taken to Egypt until Herod died when he was brought back to Nazareth, fulfilling the prophecy from Hosea chapter 1, out of Egypt I've called my son. God is going to be faithful to his people even amidst this suffering because not all of the male children will die because this is Jesus' family. This is Jesus' lineage. These people will give birth to a true and righteous king who will go to the cross to pay for all of the injustice that all of his people have ever and will ever face. And yes, die for those who have been unjust. Sinners like you and me. I leave you with those words that God gave to Jacob. That you would leave from this place with hope in God's providence. Because of what he's done in and through Christ. I am God, the God of your Father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Let us pray together. Father, we know that you... Are with us because we confess to know the language of one of your very names, which is Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus, you are our Emmanuel. You have gone down to Egypt with us. You have already raised us out of the Egypt of our sins because you were raised on the third day. But Lord, we still walk by faith and not by sight. Help us in word, prayer, and sacrament to trust in the covenant promises of our God in whose name we pray. Amen.